Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 143. Would you like to add data quickly to a map with Python? Have you wanted to create beautiful interactive maps and export them as a standalone static web page? This week on the show, Christopher Trudeau is here, bringing another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. We share a recent RealPython tutorial about using Python Folium to create geospatial data visualizations. Folium harnesses the power of the JavaScript library Leaflet. The project shares how to combine this graphical power with Python's data wrangling strength. Christopher shares a recent Python enhancement proposal about the global interpreter lock in CPython. The PEP proposes a change to the build process that implements a flag for optionally building a gillless interpreter. We share several other articles and projects from the Python community, including a news update, a YAML document from Hell, a set of logging practices to follow, a discussion about the discourse surrounding the recent Python packaging user survey, a modern Python UI library based on Tkinter, and a lightweight toolkit for bounding boxes. The InfluxDB time series platform empowers developers and organizations to build real-time IoT, analytics, and cloud applications with timestamp data. Learn more and start for free at InfluxData.com. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Christopher, welcome back. Yeah, good to hear your voice. I'm excited to dive in this week. Uh, we got a lot of interesting things and a really in-depth discussion that's been uh, all over the internet. And and we're going to add our two cents. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and, see what and we can two add. cents is four cents. That's that's worth a lot. There you go. Yeah. So you did have one small news item. Is that right? Yep. Something that just popped up recently. There's a library that's been kicking around for a long time that has been sort of a go-to thing, which is Bleach. It's an HTML sanitizing library. I've used it a fair amount. They have just announced two things. One, that the 6.0 releases come out. And two, they're done with it. Okay. <laughs> they're officially deprecating the library, which I was had mixed emotions to see. It's dependent on HTML5 lib, which is no longer maintained. And because Bleach is meant as a security library, they were very nervous about being based on something that wasn't maintained anymore. Mm. And the amount of effort in porting it to something else was too high. And so they've sort of said, okay, for the next year, you'll get bug fixes. And then after that, uh, maybe you should use something else. Be an interesting conversation at some point as to what the alternatives are. Yeah. The, I, think the, I think the de facto answer is don't allow your people to input HTML ever. Use something like Markdown instead, and then you don't have this problem, and it's far safer. So I think that's probably the right answer, but uh, maybe somebody else will pick up the torch. So you have used this as a 
a, a tool in some of your Django projects? Yeah, it's a common thing on the web. Like if you've got blogging, if the, any anywhere where you can allow the user to input, they might put in, say, a JavaScript tag, and that can do horrible things if you just post it regularly on the site. So you want to clean the HTML. It, it's become like a lot of the tiny editor and those kinds of equivalents where you allow people to input structured text all support some sort of markdown now. So increasingly, the answer to the question is don't support anything that could break your site. And uh, that fixes it. But uh, yeah, I've used Bleach a fair amount over the years. Okay. That's good to hear that, that the communities of writers that I know are mostly comfortable with with markdown and it was definitely an introduction to me when I joined Real Python that you know our whole world is is a markdown of, of sorts, and getting used to it. Even uh, we're using it for like generating slides and other things like that. So um, it's interesting to see that other people, contributors and stuff, would probably be comfortable with it too. Yeah, and I guess just seeing as we're talking about it, uh, big thanks to Will Con Green and others who have been maintaining this library for the better part of a decade. So. Uh, you know, go, go work on the next interesting project. <laughs> cool. Well, that gets us into our articles and tutorials this week. Mine is a real Python one. This is from core team member and previous guest, actually multiple time guest, Martin Broyce. It's almost a step-by-step. It really feels like very close to that, but it's a tutorial uh, about a tool called Python Folium. Folium is using a tool that I had heard about several years before I got into Python for doing mapping called Leaflet, which is a very popular JavaScript library. And Folium ties it together with a nice Python API. Probably the greatest thing about it is once you've created this fairly short script of kind of creating and designing everything, what you output as a geographic visualization can be shared as a website, just outputs an HTML file that uh, can be interactive and you can kind of control different components in it. So it really shows off Folium. In the process of it, you're going to walk through setting up your environment and pip installing and getting all that stuff going. And within three lines of a Python file, you've run it and it outputs that single HTML file, which then you can just open up in a browser and kind of see the results. The default map tiles for the library are all from OpenStreetMap. And what was nice is that has pluses and minuses to it. Sometimes you're going to want something that maybe looks different or has a different sort of styling. And so Martin takes you through a tool called Positron. There's this Cardo DB and Stamen design group that has basically made nicer base maps that can be imported and used in it. He quickly adds geolocation stuff to it, and you can add the default zoom level and all these kinds of little commands pretty quickly with Folium through a few keyword arguments. You get to practice some of that. And then he uses a tool called GeoJSON to describe the map a little bit more, you know, specifically for, in this purposes, you're going to look at it in, with, with political country boundaries that would then align to database information so you can kind of get your data. And he's in the end, creating a choropleth map, which is basically, you know, a colorful way of indicating levels. In this case, it's ecological footprint uh, per capita information. And he talks about, you know, binding that geojson layer to 
generate the, it's a hard word to say, Coro, <laughs> Coropleth map, and you get to style it. One nice thing that you can do with this, since it is an HTML file, that you can work with this in Jupyter, and then you get even more of the interactivity of Jupyter. So he's provided files for that, provides the CSV data for working with this particular project, and that's coming from a Wikipedia article talking about, again, sort of the footprints ecologically that different countries have, and our two countries are not the best <laughs> as far as our ecological footprints, but talks about reading that information, a little side, an aside about finding the keys within GeoJSON data, which was a nice little aside that he had in there. And then kind of ends up just wrapping up doing much more data visualization types of stuff. Things like controlling how many bins that you have and adjusting where the colors show. Sometimes you, you know, you apply something and it isn't quite, you know, giving you the story that you're wanting to try to share. And so he does a little bit of adjustments there, doing custom data binning and adding the ability to control the layers just a nice tour of this tool to get you going with Folium. And I was just impressed with how kind of quick and breezy it was. <laughs> if you're looking for like a, a nice tutorial to kind of get you going and, and you thought about adding maps to your data visualizations, this is a nice library to do that. And again, you can download all the code, the CSV and the Jupyter Notebook to play with interactively. They also added a quiz, which is nice that you can try out. And we've been trying to do more and more of that, especially with the Python basic stuff. We've been adding several quizzes, but also along the lines with newer libraries or other tutorials, you can check it out as you go. Have you done much data visualization stuff or played with mapping in that way? No, it's not not a not a place I've uh, entered into. I've I've uh, worked with departments that did it and yeah, uh, sort of bow to the wizardry. Um, I, I do know it's <laughs> uh, something as simple as what title are you going to put on that landmass is a tricky, tricky question sometimes. So yeah, uh, yeah I'm I'm happy to have stayed out of it. Yeah, the political boundaries was an interesting uh, kind of wrinkle in this particular tutorial. Yeah, you know, when I looked at a, I worked at a law firm in Hawaii, and it was there was a lot of that sort of geographic and other interesting data and that whole mapping area, and then also working in environmental science. So it was pretty common to look at what tools are available, and uh, it's nice to see uh, leaflets being embraced in this way and get into Python. What's your first article? Uh, well, uh, you know, the only thing I think Python developers like talking about more than how the transition from Python 2 to Python 3 caused famine, plague, and the dissolution of society <laughs> as we know it right. is how the gill is the only thing standing in the way of us using Python as a programming language. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> silliness aside, there have been many proposals and lots of work over the years to make Python faster and handle parallelism better. And the latest is PEP 703, which is titled Making the Global Interpreter Lock Optional in CPython. In case you're new to Python or have had the good fortune to avoid writing code in parallel, the global interpreter lock, known as the gill to its friends and, well, I guess enemies, is a mechanism that prevents parallel code both accessing certain 
assets at the same time, which causes problems when you're coding in parallel. There's a single lock, hence the name global, throughout the interpreter, and its tendrils delve deep through the machinery, affecting extension packages written in C, for example. So there's been much talk over the years of a gillectomy. That's what the cool kids call about removing the gill from CPython. Yes, this is such a debate. We have terminology around it. Uh, Yeah, slang. (laughs) And and in fact, uh, one of the reasons the alternate interpreter PyPy was created was to make a gillless interpreter. The challenge to removing the gill isn't so much just CPython, the interpreter itself. Uh, That would be self-contained, but it's the extensions. So as soon as you start to touch these things, you're going to impact how the C extensions work and whether or not the interpreter is backwardly compatible with those C extensions. So you know how that reference I made earlier to, you know, the Python 3 transition being a mess. Well, the community's learned a little bit from that and doesn't want to create a big chasm of incompatibility just to fix the gill. Yeah. So... Here we go. PEP703 proposes kind of an interesting thing. They're going to add a build flag to the interpreter that turns the gill off. So essentially, the idea is to recognize that there's a whole subset of the Python community that's okay with a lack of backward compatibility and who could take advantage of the increased parallelism that could be obtained by removing the gill. So instead of saying, hey, we're going to get rid of it and we've got this compatibility problem, they're saying, you know what? You can compile your own version of the interpreter without it. So in order to do this, they have to rearrange some of the interpreter's guts, uh, some of that self-contained stuff that I was talking about. And an example of this is the reference counting mechanism. So the reference counter is part of how objects get counted so that the interpreter knows when to free them when they're no longer in use. So if you build an interpreter with this new disable gill flag, it would not be binary compatible with the regular interpreter. So they're just basically giving you the ability of you know drawing a line. C extensions that work with this new build become responsible for some of their own locking, which would mean you probably have to do some changes to those kinds of extensions. The PEP is already marked as Python 3.12, so this should be showing up in the fall. For those developers who are doing data-intensive computation where parallelism is a big thing or aren't particularly dependent on existing extensions, although that is going to be an interesting Venn diagram, this could make a bit of a difference. And I suspect what might happen is some of the key players in the extension space like Pandas and NumPy might release compatible libraries that could take advantage of this. So, you know, a, a new wheel that is for this mode, I suspect, might happen. So it's uh, it's interesting, and uh, it won't shut up the people who say we must get rid of the gill, but it's a step. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like if you're interested in this, it is going to be a little bit of legwork on your end, and then talk about the compatibility part. You'll definitely have to <laughs> plan a lot of that stuff out. I, it yeah, it, it essentially is. I, I and I mean this in a nice way, but it's kicking the can down the road, right? Like it, it essentially yeah. says, "All right, if you want to do this, no, fine, but there's going to be some work that you have to do in order for it to happen." Rather than trying to come up with some magic to make it all work in all current situations, which seems to be nigh on impossible. Yeah, it's interesting. There's been all these different proposals for this kind of thing, the sub-interpreters thing, which seems like it's still kind of, you know, in the background there. Yeah, these are all connected. And in fact, there is even a um, 
like a prototype available attached to the pep. Like this, this was, this wasn't a hey, I've got an idea. This was a hey, we've got code we can commit. Right. So, uh, so if you're interested in this space, go check the pep pep out, and uh, there's a whole bunch of connected documents that you can play with. Yeah, awesome. Are you building real-time applications? Check out InfluxDB, time series platform. InfluxDB is optimized for developer productivity, so developers can build IoT, analytics, and cloud applications quickly and at scale. With its data collectors and scripting languages, a common API across the entire platform, and highly performant time series engine and storage, InfluxDB makes it easy to build once and deploy across multiple products and environments, at the edge, on-prem, or in the cloud. Check it out and start for free at influxdata.com. That's I-N-F-L-U-X-D-A-T-A dot com. This next one you had suggested to me, and I found it fascinating. Uh, we've talked about, well, we started the conversation today talking about different market markdown languages and so forth. And there is a very, I don't know if it's popular, but it's definitely one that is in use across a variety of systems. And so it's something that you kind of run into from time to time. I, I definitely have had the experience of working with YAML. And this article, even though YAML is not specifically Python, it is a tool that you as somebody who's configuring tools or often maybe you know, working with other people's projects, you may have run with it. The title is the YAML and YAML is uh, spelled Y-A-M-L, and it's the YAML document from hell. <laughs> the, it's a blog post from Rude Van Aseldonk. It really kind of covers this interesting set of hazards and potential pitfalls, or as my co-host Chris likes to call them, foot guns of YAML. <laughs> I didn't know it had quite an interesting journey as a specification, the article starts with this really kind of nice introduction into like, okay, it's really, really complex. And then it compares it with the JSON spec, which uh, he links to a YouTube video where <laughs> uh, Douglas Crockford has claimed to discover JSON because it was so obvious and not have invented it, which is an interesting sort of video to watch. And I think a lot of us have used JSON and kind of understand the, the the functionality of it its rules are, are very sort of strict and I, I think maybe the one thing that's weird with yaml is it has a lot of kind of strange edge cases and a lot of the ones i'm going to talk about now i think have to do mostly with the concept that it doesn't require strings to have quotation marks around them would solve uh, quite a few of them so what he's done here is created this document that crashes into all the possible <laughs> sort of side things that you could have go wrong. Uh, he starts with a, a server config uh, port mapping segment. Its comment is expose only SSH and HTTP. And then what you learn from this particular example is that you might be setting up the ports for a container. The first port maybe is 22 colon 22. What you end up seeing on the output of that in say something like you know json or output of it is that it's converted that first number to 1342 
And you go, what the hell happened here? Well, it turned out that it is taking numbers from zero to 59 that are separated and saying, okay, well, if it's below the number 60, then it's probably in base 60 or sexagesimal <laughs> or n- numeric literals. And it's an arcane feature that was in YAML 1.1, and then they just silently removed it in 1.2. And so you get this weird error suddenly, like, what the heck, where did that come from? You know, along with your normal ports of 8080 or 443, you get this re- weird conversion into it. So again, kind of an odd one there. Before you move on with that one, uh, the where that one gets really, really messy is a lot of YAML packages are built on a couple of common parsers. Okay. So you might not even realize that you're using 1.1 or 1.2 because you, you're you using, you know, the Python YAML library. And so uh, you can get into a situation where the same file with two different parsers will give you two different results because the underlying library the parser is using is the old one that has the sexy decimal or whatever you said, uh, and the new one doesn't. So, you, so it's not just that it's horrible; right. it's that it it's it's variable depending on what your library dependencies are. So it gets really messy. Right. So, like he mentions a couple that are involved with like Go um, and their YAML package, but there are a handful of different ways of reading YAML into Python, like PyYAML. And you're saying that that one, okay, YAML 1.2 is more than 10 years old. And you think, okay, it should be widely supported, but I guess the version libyaml at the time of writing, which is used by PyYAML, still implements 1.1. Oh boy. Yeah, okay. So yeah, that that could be really messy and again, foot gun. Yeah. Yeah. And the next one he get, gets into is that you can create anchors in YAML using uh, an ampersand, the N symbol or the and symbol. <laughs> it put that in front of a value. And what that will do is then have a value with an alias that has a, a an asterisk followed by the name. And in this particular case, maybe you're using an asterisk as the way that it might be commonly used in like a file system or something like that to indicate a wildcard. And so just the behavior of these anchors, aliases, and tags uh, can, again, give you really odd results. This gets into one of my favorite things that we we talk about in <laughs> in our articles and, and so forth is this idea that... <sighs> don't load untrusted. (laughs) And so this is yet another one like, okay, yeah, don't load untrusted YAML documents because potentially they could be unsafe. And so like, it's, it's kind of, again, frustrating. And then again, that PI YAML uh, fails to load the particular document because it doesn't know that this particular style of a, a tag, probably one of the funniest one is one that is, I guess, infamous. It's called the Norway problem. (laughs) And he, uh, Norway would be abbreviated as NO in a list of like geographic regions like DK, FI, IS, and NO. What is really odd then is that gets translated to false. The literals off, no, and N in variety of capitalizations, but not any capitalization, are all false in YAML 1.1. So that means on, yes, and y are true in that case also. So it's really kind of confusing that that no would be translated to false. I'm not sure what other languages actually do that. 
I think it was meant, I, I think the original purpose was YAML was supposed to be more human readable and not just for developers. And so yes, no is an, is sort of an obvious. And again, on, off, on has the same problem. Uh, I right. live in Ontario, which the two-letter province code for that is O-N. So uh, <laughs> heaven help you if there's an Ontario Norway because uh, you're in trouble. <laughs> Right. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Too crazy. Anyway, so it's, it's, it continues and gets into, you know, non string keys. So again, going back to our friends on or no or, or things like that, if that's potentially an abbreviation or, you know, something that, again, trying to be human readable would make sense as a, a value in that is that it could be translated into Boolean and then that may not work as a key. Then one other thing that I, this is the one I wasn't totally assured on, but basically leaving strings encoded can lead to unintentional numbers that you're getting in there. And so I'm wondering if that's that whole kind of version number thing where stuff gets rounded or, uh, or ordered differently potentially because it's again, numbers without, you know, quotation marks around it, that they're, they're intended as strings. It's really intriguing, like all these different kinds of things that are in there and the other one that I really enjoyed kind of thinking about is the, a lot of people say, well, I'll solve my own problem here by I'll just create a template and always use that and work inside of it. But that can be a terrible idea because white space is significant. And so if you've laid out a template and you're maybe pasting values in or something, you may suddenly have adjusted your indentation and your white space and suddenly you can't figure out what's going on as far as you know what the errors are so copying and pasting and templating could be a really terrible idea and he had a nice uh meme <laughs> that he tied to there which is a, a video of uh three people trying to find a duck while blindfolded as like kind of a contest and the duck's just sort of wandering in between them and it's the idea of you trying to figure out where does the white space start and end here for <laughs> these different things so then he gives a, some suggestions as far as alternative configuration formats. Toml, which we've talked about on the show a few times, and it is similar in many ways. Probably the biggest one is that strings are always quoted, and it is embraced by Python in kind of an interesting way. It's now even in the Python standard library. I'll include some links to a recent article by Gerarna about that. I'll also include a, a link to a fairly recent article uh, about YAML from Bartage about this. He covers some of the potential foot guns and so forth, but it isn't quite as uh, as convenient as some of the things that are coming now with uh, Python and Tom will becoming better friends. So yeah, it's I just dug it. It's a, it's interesting like to think about all these potential ways that you could get yourself in a bad situation just with a configuration file and. As YAML aims to be a more human-friendly alternative JSON, in his conclusion, he's saying with all of its features, it became such a complex format with so many bizarre, unexpected behaviors that it is difficult for humans to predict how a given YAML document will parse. And yeah, I haven't had these kinds of levels of problems. I think I've had problems with the indentation uh, white space stuff, but not as many with the values. Have you run into issues with YAML yourself? Uh, the spacing all the time. We use it as the feeder format for the PyCoders newsletter. 
And I tend to have to do a lot of copy and pasting from little bits of snippets of templates and things that we have to do, you know, to add an event or something along those lines. And I'd say, I don't know, uh, once every week or two, I'm getting a failure online 432. And it's like, what's wrong with that? Oh, wait, there's a space missing. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's kind of wild. All the other ones that, that, you know, there's been the, the document that they wrote is, is really intense as far as creating the specifications and, you know, again, comparing it to something like the JSON spec. Yeah. If, if you've got a choice, I would suggest nowadays, if you're writing something new, use Toml, avoid YAML. Yeah. If you don't have a choice, well then, you know, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. What's your next one? Uh, so this one is general development advice article from Elron at Tergeman called uh, Logging Practices I Follow. And as the title implies, this is advice about how to structure your logs. The first part poses a great question, should you even log it? Uh, so Elron breaks that down into sub-questions. Is the thing you're logging a big object? If so, can you log only part of it? Uh, maybe like its length or some of its attributes? Is the info logged elsewhere? Particularly in complex systems, you see the microservices all the time where it's like the first service logs it and then the second service logs it and the third service logs it. Wow. So, you know, do you need that redundancy? And then the sort of the key question you can sort of ask yourself as you're writing the log statement is, does the info actually help me debug or understand what's happening, particularly in production? After covering whether to log, he goes on to talk about how to log. The advice section starts with be consistent, uh, which is great advice. Most logging tools will let you set up some sort of template, and uh, that can help you with things like starting the message with the module or service name, and then the function uh, that's the, the the name of the function or the method that the log statement's inside of. Okay, um, and so having that consistency can make it really much easier to find things. Yeah. Next piece he talks about is the logging level. Most log systems support error warning info and debug. I'm guilty of this one, either not using them enough or not using them right. I have a bad habit of just sort of sticking everything in debug and not really thinking about it. Yes, like me, my log files tend to be verbose. Yeah, have we met? Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, and it connected to that is the cost of logging. So uh, this varies between systems, uh, but being too verbose can actually turn into money. So the example he uses is uh, AWS CloudWatch, which costs 50 cents a gigabyte. And if you're, say, logging your customer object and the customer object has a bunch of stuff and you log that every single time the customer does something, that starts to mean real cash very quickly. Yeah, And then the last piece of advice he gives is, and this kind of related back to that template thing again, is uniqueness. Uh, every logging call should be unique. And I've occasionally run into this, and usually it's with my print statements, not my logging statements, but you stick in a got here and then there's a got here somewhere else and you're reading your code and going, how did, how did I get there? I didn't get there. And then it's like, oh, wait, that was the other got here, right? So, uh, so you want your logging template to include something that's nice and unique. And again, that advice of sort of the module plus function name comes pretty close to guaranteeing that to happen. You don't have to really think about it too much. So it wasn't a Python-specific article, but uh, you know, if you're ever using the logging module in whatever language you're writing in, uh, there's some good advice here. Yeah, some nice guidelines to think about. That frugality part, I'm intrigued by like how much logging that you would do to be generating gigabytes of logs, but I guess it depends on the kinds of information that you're trying to contain in the logs <laughs> what, what he was pointing at wasn't so much that you've got too many statements but like the default might be i'm just going to dump this object and it'll serialize yeah 
And, you know, something like a customer object might have a lot of information in it. Right? Like you've got their name, their, you know, their phone number, all the rest of that kind of stuff. And the easy thing to do for the developer is just go log percent %s customer object. And if it serializes all of that, you're not going to need any of it when you're debugging. You might need just, say, the customer's ID, right? Right. And so you could end up with a log statement that outputs many, many lines. And that's where the verbosity can come from rather than, oh, have I written too many debug statements? Yeah, I feel like that is potentially security hell also. <laughs> there's always, yeah, there's always the challenge there. And I think the he doesn't get into this as much, but to me, I think the right answer to that is that logging level thing, right? So if you absolutely need that, put that on debug and then set your production systems on, say, warning, right? Right, or error. So if you're trying warning. to mimic something, you know, you're trying to reproduce a bug, turn your logging up. And if you're in production, don't keep all the rest of that stuff that is, uh, just makes it noisy. Yeah, totally. Well, that gets us into our discussion. Uh, it's very meta, our discussion of discussions of discussions, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have like five links. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's going to go, mess. and there could be even more. Uh, it uh, just kept uh, quite the rabbit hole this week of of stuff. And it's trying to decide... It was nice that some of them had the summaries of like, this will take you two hours to read. I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> okay, I'm thinking I'm going to filter a yes. little bit. <laughs> go, go make a coffee and then come back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, the discussion this week is all on, there's been a flurry of stuff going around in the Python community about packaging tools. And a lot of this has come out of the fact that there was a survey from the Python packaging community recently on how developers felt about the state of the packaging ecosystem. And so there have been multiple articles and multiple threads in response to that. And there have been threads for the articles and threads on the threads of the articles. So it, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. There is a certain amount of irony in the fact that one of the things that gets complained about, which we'll get into very shortly, is there's just too many of these things and we've got too much response. So um, yeah, 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 buckle up. So what we're going to do <laughs> is Mr. Bailey and I each have one of the two articles that we're going to cover and we'll do a quick little overview and then we'll uh, start chatting about uh, some of the vitriol that's been going back back and forth in the discussion communities. Yeah. So I will start off. And this is this is a really long uh, but very descriptive title and article. The title is How to Improve Python Packaging or Why 14 Tools or at Least 12 Too Many. Unfortunately, the article is by someone named Chris. So I'm going to refer to him as his, by his last name, Warwick, just to keep it clean. Makes me feel a little bit like a gym teacher. Warwick, three more laps. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Warwick, uh, still doesn't feel right, has written a really in-depth article that includes a survey of the current state of the packaging ecosystem, comparison to how other languages do it, and then some thoughts on that packaging survey that I was just talking about. He starts out by giving a little bit of a history lesson, talking about the original disutils and setup pie. Uh, this evolved over time because requiring code execution for packaging is asking for trouble. And then, of course, we had the addition of virtual environments and all that. And then, say, wheels. So he talks about each one of these and how the new tools came about and, you know, different metafiles and all of those things that are... And then, of course, there's the sideways answer to these things like, okay, use Conda instead. Right. The heart of the article, or at least my favorite part, is he's got this big, ta beautiful table in the middle that lists 14 different tools and the capabilities each provides. And some of these tools overlap with each other and some are standalone. You know, so for example, if you're using Conda, you're not going to be using PIP because those things don't work together. And some of them are supersets. So like PIPenv is meant to be a replacement for PIP and VMV. 
what really blew my mind, I honestly didn't know that much about the folks who built these things. So I'd always kind of had the assumption that the reason we have so many is because everybody's come along and said, I will fix that. And these, these were all independent things. What blew my mind was there's not as much independence as I thought. So a significant percentage of them come out of or are blessed by the Python Packaging Authority. Nine of the 14 are officially part of the authority. And uh, so I always figured the reason we had so many was because there wasn't a recommended thing. Well, it turns out our recommender is producing a lot of the tools and making the confusion worse. Uh, and it kind of reminds me of that XKCD comic about standards. And if you haven't seen it, it's three panels. And the first panel is there are 14 competing standards. The number's a coincidence. Uh, panel two is people standing there discussing how ridiculous this is and decide to come up with a new standard that is universal. And then panel three says, we now have 15 competing standards. Yeah. And that's kind of the state we're in. So Warwick's article finishes up by summarizing the results from the packaging survey. The short version is most people agree that this is too complicated. And although that seems to be a given, nobody's in agreement as to what to do about that. Um, a lot of the packaging thread that comes out of the uh, the authority, the conversation they were having was concentrating on things like some of the more complex stuff like binary management. And that's a tough problem. And it kind of goes back to that sort of backward compatibility and, you know, kind of that similar to that Gil thing we were talking about, right? Like, what are you willing to break? And the question Warwick raises, and I agree with him a bit on this, is where should we be focusing and can we solve the 80% problem or make it easier? This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It's related to this week's discussion topic, and it's titled Everyday Project Packaging with PyProjectTomel. In this code conversation, you'll follow a chat between Ian Curry and Gerarna Hiela, demonstrating the relatively new officially sanctioned way of setting up your Python projects using a PyProjectTomel file and installing your package with pip. This technique has a good set of benefits, such as being able to call your project from anywhere, playing on the same team as the import system, and allowing for consistent imports along with having one file that'll work for many build systems. Along the way, you'll learn about structuring files and folders in your project, understanding different ways to run your script, exploring how the import system works, along with exploring the Python packaging world. You'll write a Python project TOML file to configure your package and learn how to install that package with pip. You'll also dive into the various rabbit holes along the way as Ian and Gerarna talk about the aspects of the process. Real Python video courses are broken into easily consumable sections and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions, check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. How about your guy? What'd he say? This one is from Pradyan Gadim, and it's titled Thoughts on the Python Packaging Ecosystem. It's a response to a discussion topic that was spawned out of the original packaging survey. I'll include a link to the Python packaging user survey. That survey was uh, conducted September and through October of 2022. And then uh, the analysis was put out in like November. The conversations kind of, that's when it all sort of started. And I have also a thread to the 
discussion uh, on it, which is interesting. And, and a lot of players that we are familiar with that have been guests on the show have you know, been talking about some of the stuff. So it's kind of interesting to see in the frequent posters list a, a handful of different people that, that kind of talk about this. This is Prajun's just overall thoughts and his response to what's going on there. He has a very deep background and has worked in packaging, worked on PIP. He's very involved in what's going on at, you know, at the core level and knows a lot of the pe- main players. He has a TLDR section, and I'll go ahead and just hit the key points there. The, the Python packaging ecosystem unintentionally became the type of competitive space that it is today. The commuter needs to make an explicit decision if it should continue operating under the model that led to this status quo and pick from N different tools that do N different things is a good model. Pick from N equivalent choices is a really bad user experience. Picking a default doesn't make other approaches illegal. Communication about the Python packaging ecosystem is fragmented and we should improve that. And I think that's the core thing that I'm getting out of a handful of different sort of conversations that are here is that the communication that's being provided is very fragmented. And again, coming from a, an organization that's considered an authority, that seems a little weird. And that kind of gets into the meta conversation that we're going to dive into a little bit more. Key points from his article, he talks about something that I think a lot of people know, and I definitely stress on the show, is that Python users are not software engineers. And he has a quote from Thea Flowers, who I'll also include a link to a Mastodon thread that she did about this. That's a little, <laughs> she used to work, you know, for uh, PyPA. And so she has strong feelings because uh, this conversation has come up multiple times. But this is one of the key things that she says. The reason there are so many tools for Python, managing Python dependency is because Python is not a monoculture. And definitely we talk about that all the time, right? And different folks need different things. Users expect a default workflow when people compare ecosystems like NPM, you know, the Node.js kind of stuff, or Cargo when they're working in Rust, where there is this sort of single tool that provides a system. A lot of them, you know, it just... is nice that it worked out that way, you know? And I don't know if that's kind of one of those key problems. Like, it's like you point at the solution and say, we should have that. And then I'm not sure where the communication happens, you know, to kind of resolve that issue. This has definitely been one of those things where I kind of scratch my head about packaging. And I've definitely had lots of conversations on here about it. Um, I think that there are people working hard to get the standards together. He has a couple other key points of flexibility leads to complexity. Packaging in Python has been a bit of a reputation of a bumpy ride. Suppression is mostly a byproduct of Python's versatility. He gets into this whole thing about this sort of community spectrum. The competitive spectrum describes like community as, as being caring, which is where members are motivated by helping each other. They could be collaborative, which is members share goals and help each other to achieve them. Cordial members have their own goals, which do not conflict with each other. Competitive members share the same goals and compete against each other to achieve them. And combative members must achieve their goals by preventing others to do that. So that's kind of where we're at is sort of in that competitive 
area, unfortunately. And that's why there's so many of these people, you know, trying to accomplish the same goal. So again, these are lots of these little sections in here, kind of getting into it. He talks about, again, the key point that you mentioned there of Conda as a different solution, poetry, PDM, Hatch, PyFlow, et cetera. These tools are firmly in the competitive model. They're competing for users. They're competing to be the best solution to the workflow problem. They're arguably even competing for contributors. So in a lot of ways, the tool that, I think most Python users all have used is pip and it's kind of uniquely positioned in the packaging ecosystem. It's the one that kind of comes with everything and anybody installing and working with Python most likely has used pip. It's really the other side of it really like when you are going to share your packages or, you know, either that's in an, a environment where you're working in say a office with a a bunch of other kind of corporate situation or you're going to actually put it up on PyPI. So he talks a little bit about that, about really how build backends are tied to these sort of workflow tools. Like there's even one that I had not even heard of at this point that is really interesting because somebody had brought up, there's a conversation that the strategy discussion, I brought up Russell Keith McGee's thing. He's a couple comments in there, and he had an example that the packaging.python.org tutorial was updated six months ago and uses Hatch and its examples. So Hatch is a, a system that I was not familiar with. You know, I'm familiar with several of the other ones that you, you were talking about. And what he's stating in his comment is that this would seem to indicate that a significant signal from the PyPA is that Hatch is a new default. But I'm unaware of any formal statement of that intent, which does, what does this decision mean for setup tools? Should it be considered deprecated? Should existing project migrate to Hatch? That kind of fragmentation of the backend part, the build part, is a big problem. And it's... um. You know, a lot of the people, these articles and and a lot of threads seem to talk about that that whole, like, you know, there's these plethora of tools and the plethora doesn't bother me. Okay. I I don't look at talks and knocks and go, why did you do that? Well, I know why they did that. Somebody looked at talks and went, I think I've got a better idea. Where I'm always shaking my head. And and before I get into this, I'd like to start with... I understand that everybody in the community is working with the best intentions. Right. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of history and reasons I don't know. And this is purely Monday morning quarterbacking. So, you know, send your angry letters to Christopher Bailey. <laughs> Not to me. But uh, like, I-, I look at, you know, we added setup.cfg. And it was supposed to solve certain kinds of problems so we could get rid of setup.py. We added pyprojects.toml which as far as I can tell, could have all of set up CFG inside of it, but except the tools don't do that yet. And I don't know whether that's because we're in the middle of a transition or whether because somebody thinks those things should be in two different files. I don't know. You know, we have Twine. Uh, I don't understand why that wouldn't have just been another pip subcommand because anyone who's using Twine is definitely using pip. 
and pips it in there with the main Python. So why wouldn't it have just been pip upload, right? Right. And again, there may be good historical reasons for some of these things, but that to me is where it feels like we're spinning. Poetry to me is an answer to, I don't like that, all that stuff I just mentioned. And so we've got a different answer. And so that competitive stuff, I'm comfy with that. And I get that. And I think some of this is a communication aspect. Some of it, uh, you know, uh, Star Girl there makes the comment that, uh, you know, the, the core team and the steering council have routinely abdicated the details of packaging to the community. Right. I, we could argue whether that's the right thing. And I think the reason, you know, uh, cargo and NPM are the way they are is I suspect because those communities decided not to solve that problem that way. And I don't personally, I don't see it that if the, you know, if the steering committee or if the authority became a little more authoritative about this stuff, that wouldn't stop poetry from existing. No one's saying get rid of poetry, right? but we could definitely clean up the default. And I think some of it too is I'd like to better understand, and maybe this is just my own ignorance, but I'd better, like to better understand where the boundaries are. So like if if particular tools are supposed to solve particular problems, I'd like to know which problems they solve and which problems they don't. So like if you, you know, if you if you're dealing with binaries, therefore you need this other thing, that's great. I I can see that because the folks dealing with binaries could then go and deal with that other thing. But there seems to be a large amount of overlap. And uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's messy is is the problem, right? Like it's messy. Yeah. One of the other key areas he talks about and I, I touched on it really briefly, that I think would be nice is to kind of look at using PIP, which is this core tool for installing Python and, you know, adding packages and so forth. It, it'd be nice, and this is a Paul Moore quote, that at some point I do think that PIP needs to make a firm decision on whether it's a development workflow tool or just an installer because it has some of the things in it, you know, you can create your requirements.txt and you can do lots of other kinds of things depending if you're working just, you know, locally and need to recreate stuff for yourself, but it's missing some of the additional steps of, you know, these other tools. He has a, a section about, you know, the communication part. There's no single place where users can go to get information about the Python packaging ecosystem, either on how it's evolving or what the function best practices are today, whether A, don't have them documented, or B, don't have a good approach to communicating about them to end users. And so there's, you know, kind of a a bit of a vacuum. Yeah, well, it, and, and I think this comes back to the, you know, that, that whole idea of the steering community, committee saying this is the community's thing. And, and I kind of get why, but then the, a whole bunch of it's packaged with the interpreter. So, like it's kind of you know if you're going to include it you know it's it's python dash m pip right <laughs> so right. there is a de facto this is the thing because it ships with the interpreter and so there like it or not the impression that someone who is new to python is going to get who doesn't understand the machinations of how these things are discussed in the background is that's the tool right right and similarly, right? So, so uh, Warwick's uh, article mentions uh, PEP 582, uh, which is being included in Python 3.12. And that is um, the use of a Dunder PyPackages directory. And this is a lot closer to how uh, Node does things. 
and it will not completely eliminate the need for virtual environments, but it does address some of those problems. So again, I think some of it is we're having these conversations midway through a transition that's happening inside of uh, Python. And so I, I think some of it may be it's bumpy because we're it's in progress. And and again, this is where communication could help, right? Like if there were a roadmap somewhere yeah. and some of the conversations were, you know, we're going to try and do these things and this is the goal, then maybe people would be comfortable being, you know, patient with it. And again, maybe there is a roadmap somewhere. This could just be my ignorance that, you know, that, that's the, the theme of today's show is Christopher's ignorance. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm in the same boat. Like I... There's so many of these packaging tools that I haven't ever explored and, and played with. I, I find it interesting that a lot of them kind of, you know, continue to be adopted and offered as additional choices, you know, in inside of that. And that I guess that's leading to that kind of very somewhat messy history of it, you know. And I I like this thread that I'll again include a link this Mastodon thread from Stargirl Thea Flowers about it, but she talks about like where she became disillusioned because it was just like a lot of fighting inside of it. And part of it, you have to realize that these are people that it's, they're completely volunteer, (laughs) you know? And so should that change, you know, should there be paid involvement to make this be a little more of an authority, you know, and, and have people that, aren't just volunteering their time to try to make it happen along with that sort of like working with the Python core team and the steering council, trying to get that working. We mentioned last year, the idea that I had talked to Brett Cannon and I had invited him on the show right about the time that he was trying to get this pep proposed about lock files and sort of standardizing that stuff. And then that was shot down. And so there's still a lot of this like, community you know voting for things and kind of getting things involved and and it can just be very very messy does that affect me day to day i have my solution and i i'm happy with what's working for me but it i think one of the hard things as someone who is trying to teach new users how to use python this is an area where you have kind of like (laughs) you know there's like an odd feeling in the pit of your stomach like am i giving the best solution to this person yeah well and i think it's and it's compounded by the fact that the default behavior is something that can get you in a lot of trouble right uh because if you don't use a virtual env you are going to do a cross your entire operating system install yeah and it will cause you problems eventually right right and because that's a default uh, behavior those who are new to the system like you know w- one of the things you know i i was uh i was teaching a python course for a client a couple months back and the people who were asking for the course were not python people and one of the things they asked for was like what is a template of uh what uh, of a programming file that does nothing. And I'm like, oh, you're Java people, aren't you? Right? Like you, you have to import this, you have to do a class, you've got to get these brace brackets. I'm like, you want hello world, it's print hello world. Like there's nothing else to do here. Like right. you don't, the, the thing you're asking for doesn't exist. And, uh, and that, the challenge with... That structure is something they really yeah, like. And so the, the challenge with trying to teach that 
is, you know, the bare minimum shouldn't be don't install a package till you understand what the virtual env is because uh, you could, yeah. you know, it's going to hurt you months from now. And some of it goes away because we do things like, oh, just, you know, use Visual Studio or use PyCharm. And of course, they handle a lot of that in the background. But you want that first experience to be that hello world experience not to be dangerous. Right. And uh, the fact that we have to use virtual M's to solve a problem that's there because of the history of the language, I understand why it's there. I, I know it's, it, you know, maybe this pep will help it go away. But you're into this place where very, very quickly it's like, oh, uh, you know, you're in the shallow end, here's the print, here's whatever. It's not a gentle slope to the deep end. It's a 30-foot cliff and uh, you step too far that way and you're drowning, right? And 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 I think that frustration makes it that much uh, harder for new students to the language. And particularly, as you said up front, uh, so many of the folks in the Python community are not uh, software engineers, right? right? Um and so th- they may want to share their code. Yeah, and they should be able to do the simple things and 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 solve the problems they need. And they don't because there isn't that. And I'll keep with my drowning uh, analogy here because there isn't that gentle slope. They may not know how close to the edge they're standing. Right. And so I think you know what partially, and I don't know what the answer is, but I am arguing that maybe it should be a gentle slope. How how do we get closer to a gentle slope? Yeah, I wonder if as something like PyScript or other tools like that mature, if that could help somewhat, you know, I don't know. I I keep thinking about other like potential ways of, you know, making the slope a little easier. (laughs) You know, we have our tried and true methods that we're using at at RealPython, but I still feel like often people can, you know, easily get around those guardrails and, uh, and be in deep water, like you said. So (laughs) to mix my metaphors, (laughs) All right. Well, let's let's talk about something with uh, projects well, this week. So you're telling me we haven't solved it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Twenty five minutes later, and we're still like, eh. uh, yeah. These people have been talking about it for, gosh, what? It came out in November, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, well uh, into January. Maybe we so. should include just before a little bit. And if you don't want to hear this, skip ahead by. <laughs> This yeah. many minutes. Yeah, I got chapter markers. Yeah. yeah. Click so. to the next chapter. Uh, yeah. Spoiler alert, we have not solved the problem. Go ahead and click to the next chapter. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But there's plenty to read and kind of at least get, you know, get familiar with what's happening. And, you know, I'll include all the different threads. And it's I, as heated as it sometimes seem, I agree that it's at least not a combative landscape. It's, it's, it's competitive. And maybe that's the trick is trying to get, you know, back from that a little bit to kind of go back to his, his, uh, you know, scale of communities there. Yeah. And I guess the, you know, the call to action is maybe a few more folks uh, volunteer into some of this stuff and we'll see it cleaned up a little better. Yeah. Or, you know, somebody provides funding in a way to help us kind of, you know, move that direction. So, well, I, my project this week builds on an existing UI library that comes with Python, depending on your installation. It's tkinter. You've probably heard us talk about it a little bit here. This is a project by Tom Shemansky, and he has a few other contributors on it, but it's called Custom tkinter, just all together. It's a, basically imports directly tkinter, but provides a set of new modern, a little more modern, customizable widgets ready for you to go. 
it adapts to system appearance, meaning that if you have light and dark modes, that's something part of your OS, like in Mac OS or in Windows 11. It also supports high DPI, which is actually one of my <laughs> favorite things about it. Um, I've worked with a few other libraries where that was like a little bit of a chore to kind of work around, like, okay, well, how do I get the fonts in and so forth? This seems to have the scaling ready to go in it. It allows you to have buttons with images, which is kind of a nice little thing that I, I kind of dig as far as like getting buttons to look a little more interesting. It can integrate going back to maps. It can integrate with Tkinter map view. If you have, you know, played around a little bit with Tkinter, I feel like this is a nice little add-on that can just pretty quickly get you ready to go building up on top of it. It's just pip install custom Tkinter in that sense. And their suggestion right now is to use the dash dash upgrade flag uh, fairly often um, because they've been working on it pretty intensely. There is a nice uh, set of examples. One, the complex underscore example.py, I thought looked really good on macOS and showed off many of those features. And based on the screenshots on the GitHub page, it had, uh, you know, a very similar look on Windows 11. So. If you would like help to make things look a little bit more modern with your GUI interface, this takes Tkinter up uh, up another level. So what's your project this week, Christopher? So we're going to close out with a project called Pyboxes. Uh, it's by Devram Kavusoglu. Uh, there are at least three different accents in Devram's last name, so I'm sure I'm butchering at least two of those syllables. Uh, forgive, sure. forgive my continued ignorance uh, and Western pronunciation there. Again, sticking with the theme. So if you've ever played with any graphic toolkits, uh, you may have noticed that uh, something as simple as drawing a rectangle isn't always simple. Different toolkits use different coordinate systems, so the location of 0, 0 is not always the same. And if that's not bad enough, you can specify a rectangle either by using two coordinates or by a coordinate and a width and a height. So that's where Pyboxes comes in. It's a library that helps you translate between these different systems. The names of the systems he's used in the library are based on the, uh, some other libraries that use those coordinate systems. Uh, a couple of them I hadn't heard of, uh, but there's things like Albumentations 51 and Coco, and essentially it's just how those systems work. In addition to doing conversion between the formats, the library also supports common bounding box operations like union and area intersections and all that kind of good stuff. So if you're in the graphic space and you're having to deal with this kind of translation, this uh, it's a small library, but it could be really helpful. Nice. All right. Well, you're taking a nice little break here over the next week here. I'm excited for your your travels. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of sunshine. It's uh, Canadian winters. The answer is to get away from them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks. Cheers. And don't forget, easy to start and scale, InfluxDB time series platform is available in the cloud, on-premises, or locally. Get started for free today at InfluxData.com. I want to thank Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show again this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.